So we have been in this conversation the last couple of weeks talking about discipleship. And the reason for that is that Jesus told us, uh, he told his disciples when he rose from the grave, he told his disciples to meet him in Galilee. And when they got to Galilee, he told them to make disciples, to to make disciples, to baptize and to teach everything that that he had taught them. So we're trying to figure out what that looks like. What does it look like when you make disciples? What is a disciple? How do you make one? And what does it look like when you make one? So that's the conversation we've been having the last couple of weeks. And what we've seen is that a disciple is a student. It's it's a student, but not a classroom sort of student, but a hands-on, interactive student. We might say today an apprentice, somebody who is learning from a guru or a rabbi or a master, somebody who knows what they're doing, and we can imitate them, as we talked about with the children. So that's what we've been seeing, is that a a disciple is someone who is learning from a master. And what we saw uh, a couple of weeks ago is we saw that the first step to becoming a disciple is to have a problem, to say, I have this, this thing that's going on in my life, I've got a problem in my finances, I've got a problem with my health, I've got a problem with whatever it might be, and it seems to me that Jesus can answer my questions. Jesus has answers for my questions. So the first step is to have a problem. And the second is to say, and there's somebody who I can learn from. There's somebody who I can learn from. And what we saw last week is that that learning does not take place in a classroom. It does not take place in a laboratory. It doesn't take place in any kind of safe little sandbox. But it actually takes place in our lives. Because what Jesus does is he enlists us in his project. That as we come to him and say, I want to learn from you, he says, great, because I want you to be part of what I'm doing, that I will make you fishers of men. I will get you involved in the thing I'm doing. And what we've seen is that is the arena in which uh, growth and transformation happens as we apply the things we've learned from Jesus in our own lives. So that's what we've been looking at so far. And today we're going to look at a third aspect of discipleship. And this is something that has the potential to really uh, limit how much we can grow as disciples. Um, and it, not only that, it not only limits our own growth, but it can also limit our ability to make disciples. So people will look at us and say, well, you may be a disciple, but it doesn't look like there's any particular reason why I need to be a disciple, too. So uh, what that is, is that we do not celebrate. And um, I say that with some consciousness, because when I first heard about this church, I called up the the. Um, uh, executive, uh, not the executive presbyter, the, the district superintendent. And I was talking to David Beckett, who was the district superintendent then. And he, he was trying to describe Jewel Lake Parish. And he said they have exuberant worship. So I understand that this is, may not be your experience of, of this church, and that's fine. But I think if you kind of widen your scope and you say, do people see Christians generally as celebratory? Do they see us as engaged in celebrating I think oftentimes, or at least too often, they do not. Uh, if you were to ask a bunch of non-Christians, what do they think about Christians? I think oftentimes you'd get answers like self-righteous, moralistic, uh, a priggish. Um, you might see words like um, puritanical, uh, words like this, where there's this idea that they are not people who have anything to celebrate. And I think oftentimes Christians do not celebrate. And I don't think it's because they're trying to hide something. I don't think that they've got something and it's a secret little celebration they don't want to share. I think the reason that Christians sometimes don't celebrate is because they don't feel like they have anything to celebrate about. 
So um, my favorite quote on this comes from H.L. Mencken. Um, I think we've got it up here. H.L. Mencken was asked to define Puritanism. He was a humorist about a century ago. And he said, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. And, and I, you know, he was not a person of faith. Um, he was a cr- critic of Christianity. And I think, I think too much of what he saw in Christianity matched that definition. And so the, the, the story we're going to look at today is something that will help us understand how far we've come and really maybe in, in the wrong direction. Because if you were to tell a first century Christian that definition, they would have said, I am shocked. They would have said, I can't believe that because we get exactly the opposite critique from the people around us. People tell us we celebrate too much. People tell us we celebrate when we don't have a good reason to celebrate. And that would have been the response of a first century Christian. They would have said, I don't even understand where somebody could get that impression of the church. So we're going to look at a story from um, the scriptures. It's actually in three of the biographies of Jesus. Uh, There's four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and it's in all three of the of, of the first, the, all of the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, in Matthew's gospel, uh, it is uh, the the tax collector who's called is named Matthew, and he's actually believed to be the one who, at least traditionally, is the one who wrote the the gospel of Matthew. Um, but uh, if you compare that story uh, with the the accounts in Mark and Luke, you see it's the same story, just a different name. And in in the first century. That was not uncommon. People often had multiple names. So Matthew or Levi, whichever it was, it appears in three of the Gospels. And it's the story of somebody who, when Jesus called him, had a celebration. So let's go ahead and take a look at it, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 5. It says, After this he went out, Jesus, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. Now, we have to stop there because... uh, Levi is about to do something that is shocking to us, but what just happened is even more shocking. Uh, last week, if you were here, you remember Peter, when he finally realized that Jesus was not just some rabbi, Jesus was not just that guy from Nazareth who now lives in Capernaum, Jesus is a guy who's connected to God, who is a holy man. Peter's overcome with fear, and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And the difference between Peter and And Matthew or Levi is no one would have even asked that question. They wouldn't have said, said, is he a sinful man? They knew he was a sinful man. They would have said, Jesus, go away from him because he is a sinful man. And the reason for that is he was a tax collector. Luke tells us right away that he's a tax collector. And then if we miss that, they say, he says, he's sitting at the tax booth. Uh, And in that in that era, everybody who was a tax collector was a crook. They were also they were also um, uh, collaborators because they got money from this occupied country and sent it to the occupiers. But they were also crooks. And the way that that worked was this. They would buy a franchise. They, they would say to Rome, I will collect taxes in this area. Maybe it's a big geographical region or maybe it's just a small neighborhood. But they would say, I get the right to collect all the taxes from this area. And then Rome gets their money. So Rome would auction those off and somebody would pay Rome a lot of money. And then they would say, "Okay, now with my license to steal, I'm going to do exactly that. I've got to get back the money I paid Rome. I've got to get back any money I borrowed to buy that license. 
and then I've got to make some profit for myself. And they would do that, and they would put the squeeze on everybody. And so it was just understood they're not only collaborating with this foreign government, they're also swindlers. They would cheat you as soon as look at you. So uh, Matthew is a tax collector, and therefore he is a great sinner. And everybody who's listening to this should say exactly what Peter said last week. Go away from him, Lord, for he is a sinful man. And instead, Jesus says, follow me. And then the part that we're surprised by, he got up, left everything and followed him. And we're surprised because we can't imagine somebody doing that. Somebody comes to my work and they say, they say, hey, follow me. I'm not going to, you know, drop my tools or my pen or whatever it is. I'm not going to get up and follow. I'm just, just going to bail out of work in the middle of the day. Right. I might think about it. I might do it on Sunday, but I'm not going to do it at work. Right. And, and, and Matthew does it. So we're kind of startled that he would do that. But that's because we are not in a compromised job. I mean, I'm I hope that none of us are in a kind of morally compromised job where we'd be shocked if a holy man came and said, follow me. But you can imagine if you were, you might say, all right, good. I'm, I'm happy and I'm, I'm not going to look back at this. This is the worst job I've ever had. And somebody is finally going to give me a chance to, to, to get into a better place. So he follows him and then he gives a great banquet. Now, this, this word banquet here is a huge banquet. Um, in, in the Old Testament, we see this word used. Uh, Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel talks about a great feast that Belshazzar had for a thousand governors and, and other officials in the, in the empire. So this is a big feast. Um, uh, we see it used uh, when um, Abraham has a celebration when his son is weaned. And Isaac has a celebration when he conducts a peace treaty with a neighboring tribe. So it's a big celebration. You send out invitations. This is a big deal. And the people who come are tax collectors and others. If you look at the other two accounts, if you look at Matthew and Mark, it says tax collectors and sinners. But Luke gives them the benefit of the doubt. He says tax collectors and others. And partly there's a, there's a little joke there. The sinners don't want to be lumped in with the tax collectors. Because, I, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'll own that. But don't, don't include me with the tax collectors. So, so Luke says um, that they are sitting there at the table with him. And then the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees are somewhere. They're certainly not in the building. They wouldn't have been caught dead in, in um, Matthew's house. So they're probably outside looking in, and they're talking to the disciples, and they're saying, why do you do this? And we don't know what their answer is, but Jesus says, Jesus answers for them. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, he says, can you find anybody else more in need of repentance than sinners? I mean, this just makes sense, right? And that kind of silences them, at least on that question. They don't ask any more about tax collectors and sinners. But all three of the, the, the accounts of this uh, party go on with what happens next. And, and I had never noticed that until I was preparing for this message. I had always stopped there. When Jesus says, I've come to call sinners to repentance, I stopped there. But all three accounts go on. Because you see what happens is they say, yeah, but you're having fun. They say, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray. But your disciples eat and drink. See, it's all right, Jesus, I'll grant you. They're sinners. You came to call sinners. Okay, fine. I can see that. But they should look miserable. They should be unhappy. 
they should be very, very sad people because they've been such wicked people all along. And now that you have called them to repentance, the first thing they should do is wipe that smile off their face. They shouldn't be so happy that you and your friends, you eat and you drink with them. They're, they're getting drunk. What is going on here, Jesus? That's the critique. And Jesus says to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He says, he says while I'm here, there's a party. Wherever I go, there's a party. I am literally the life of the party. And he says, if I'm in the room, there should be a party. And then he gives them this parable. He says, you also told them a par- he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment, sews it on an old garment. The uh, new one will be torn, and the piece will, from the new will not match the old. And no one will put new wine into old wine skins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Now, a lot of that is lost on us because we have a disposable society. We throw away our old clothes. We throw away, if we've got wine skins, we probably throw those away too. But in that culture, he's saying there are things that are incompatible. You can't put the new with the old. If you put the new with the old, it'll be a disaster. And sometimes people interpret this by saying, what Jesus is getting at here is that the, the, the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, the way we've always done it is such and such, and you're coming up with something new. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am, and you're just going to have to get used to it. And maybe that is what Jesus is saying. But I'm not sure if Jesus is willing to give them that much credit. I think Jesus is saying, this is what God has always been about. This is really the old, what I'm doing. And what you've come up with is something new. You've come up with something novel. And I think that explains the last line. He says, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. You do with your, your teaching about being miserable what you want, but no one after drinking old wine desires new wine. If they, if, if they actually get a taste of the gospel of God's grace, they will never look back. They will never try your, your new stuff. But whether, whether I, I'm wrong about that or not, what Jesus is clearly saying is that there are things that are incompatible here. The new and the old, the Pharisees and Jesus' gospel. He's saying they just can't work together. He's saying you want people to be miserable. You want people to put on a long face and walk around looking miserable when they're fasting. And Jesus has told them already elsewhere not to do that. He says, don't do that. If I'm in the room, there should be a party. And so that's really the question for us. Is that us? If Jesus is in the room... Do we have a party? If we have been saved by grace, not because of anything we did, but just because God loves us and God left heaven, came to earth, took the penalty for everything we've ever done wrong, things we haven't even done wrong yet, took that on himself and connected us back to God so we can have God living inside of us, God working in us, making us better people. If he did that, Shouldn't we celebrate? The answer is, of course, we should celebrate. And so my question to you is, do people look at you and say, why is that person so happy? It doesn't mean bad things will never happen in our life. You know, if somebody buys me a ticket for the vacation of a lifetime to some exotic tropical paradise, right? And I go there and I'm sitting on the beach and then it starts to rain. I mean, it's going to rain sometimes in the exotic tropical paradise. But... The general picture I should have as somebody who's been saved by grace through faith is somebody who got a really sweet deal and I should be happy about it. It doesn't mean there will never be rain in my life, but it does mean I should be happy. 
And so the question for us is, are we celebrating people? Do people look at us and wonder, what are they so happy about? And I think particularly, do they look at our church, not just our church, but the church, but also our church? Do people look at us and say, why are they so happy? What's going on with them? I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do people look at us and do they believe H.L. Mencken that, that we in this building are afraid that somewhere someone might be happy? Or do they see us as people who really maybe should scale it back a little bit, that, that I'm going to have to call the cops if you guys don't tone it down some because your parties are a little bit out of whack, you know? So that's the question for us. Are we celebrating or not? Judaism is characterized by three major fasts and then uh, three major feasts and then a couple of other things that were added later. So they have three feasts. Christians took that to the next level. They said every time you get together, you can celebrate a banquet. You can celebrate the Lord's table. And even weeks when we don't celebrate communion, we have the table here to remind us we are people characterized by feasting and celebration. So let's be that kind of people. Let's be people who every week reenact Levi's feast. Every week we invite the people we know to come here and celebrate the good things that God has done in our life. Let's be a people of celebration. Let's continue our tradition here of exuberant worship. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that, that uh, Jesus is, um, is not looking for a long-faced, hangdog, priggish, moralistic religion. That Jesus wants people who, when they sense him in the room, begin to celebrate. Help us to see him more clearly so we can celebrate more richly. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.